Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women, and I want to welcome you all to our October CWN. Thank you all for coming, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation. We've had this partnership now for more than 20 years, and our co-host today from Heritage is Cora Wack, who is an assistant to uh, uh, Bridget Wagner at the Heritage Foundation. We love working with Cora. Today's discussion is about education. Um, it's a topic that we are very focused on here at uh, Claire Booth Luce, especially the education of young women, which is what our focus is. Uh, used to be if your family was conservative, if you took your daughters and your sons to church or synagogue, you'd have a pretty good shot at raising a smart conservative child. But in today's world, with radical indoctrination in the schools, toxic social media, vulgar and left-wing TV, movies, and music, it's a lot more challenging. And I wrote a book uh, based on almost three decades of working with some extraordinarily accomplished young women in high school and college and seeing how they were uh, educated and raised and turned out so well. Um, it's called How to Raise a Conservative Daughter. Uh, we've got some around here, but uh, it's in its third printing, I'm very happy to say. And we have two great panelists today to talk about education, Lindsay Burke and Amy Bookmeyer. Okay. Lindsay is the director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy, where she oversees heritage research and policy on preschool, K-12, and higher education reform. Her research has been presented and published extensively, and she's a frequent guest on radio and TV shows and a speaker on education reform issues all over the U.S. and internationally. Last year, she joined Governor Glenn Youngkin to help him in a number of capacities with his education reform efforts. And she was also appointed by the governor to serve on the Board of Visitors for George Mason University through 2026. That's a nice long term. Yes. She has a bachelor's degree from Hollins University, a master's of teaching degree in foreign language education from the University of Virginia, and a PhD in education policy from George Mason University, where she examined the intersection of educational choice and institutional theory. <laughs> and Lindsay's got a topic, a, a title, The Moment is Now for Education Freedom. Yes. Then we'll hear from Amy, who is a staff attorney at the Home School Legal Defense Association, headquartered in Percival, Virginia, which we all saw on Fox Morning News. They were uh, running a part of the program from there. And she's uh, a contact lawyer for 11 states. You know, there's been a tremendous increase in the number of children homeschooled since the Chinese COVID virus shut down our country. And I know you're going to talk a little bit about that. She's a Wisconsin native. She was homeschooled from kindergarten to 12th grade, along with her four younger siblings. Your mother will go to heaven. <laughs> she developed a passion for policy and politics while involved in high school in the Christian youth organization Generation Joshua. She majored in both politics and government and criminal justice at Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. After graduation, she returned to Wisconsin, worked as a field director for Americans for Prosperity. She received her Juris Doctor, her law degree, from the University of Wisconsin Law School, where she served as president of the Federalist Society and articles editor of the Wisconsin Law Review. She loves to travel. Uh, addition, in addition to living in Wisconsin and Tennessee, she's lived in Virginia, Idaho, Colorado, England, and Thailand. When not at work, you can usually find her traveling or reading. She said she reads 200 books a year. Really? I am so impressed. <laughs> and then after these two presentations, we'll do uh, a Q&A, and then we'll offer you lunch and informal uh, discussion. So please join me in welcoming the education panel, Lindsay Burke and Amy Buckmeyer. Thank you so much, Michelle, and thanks to Claire Booth Luce for inviting me to speak today. It's an honor to be here. I always love addressing the group, so really happy to be back. And it is an incredible moment for education reform and just education policy in general. I honestly think there's no more interesting and exciting and, quite frankly, difficult issue than education policy right now. So parents learned a lot <laughs> during COVID, right? They learned that they can't rely 
on public schools to be open to in-person instruction, even when it's safe to do so. They learned special interest groups like teachers unions wield outsized influence on whether or not their children can learn and where they can learn. They learned that schools will hide important information about their children from them, like whether they're struggling with gender dysphoria. And they learned they're indoctrinating them in the tenets of critical race theory. So let's unpack this a little bit. What does that mean? We'll start with CRT. What does it mean for a school to teach critical race theory? Critical race theory holds three main ideas at its core. The first, that there is no truth. There are only competing narratives or perspectives. Your lived experience matters more than facts. Second, that you are either an oppressed or an oppressor, a designation that is predetermined by immutable characteristics such as race. Culture is defined as groups exercising power over one another. And then third, CRT holds that America must be dismantled because it is systemically racist and because it is based on an economic system, capitalism, that leads to inequalities, they argue. Now, contrast these core beliefs of critical race theory with those of our founding fathers, our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, namely that all men are created equal. What would you prefer your children or grandchildren are taught? the tenets of CRT, or the promise of America's founding principles. Or I think as the Washington Examiner's Grant Addison put it recently, I thought he, he really nailed it. He said, what do we want the next generation of Americans to think about America? I think that's exactly right. So that's CRT. What about critical gender ideology, radical gender ideology? Its origins are the same fruit of the poisonous tree of critical theory writ large. But with critical gender theory, we have to do gender in air quotes, right? With critical gender theory, children are taught that biological sex is a social construct, that their gender is fluid, and as they reach their vulnerable and impressionable preteen years, navigating the emotional roller coaster of puberty, they're told that these emotions could mean that they are trapped in the wrong body. No child should ever be told that they were born in the wrong body. They're then put on a path to social transition, changing names and pronouns, with some school districts putting them on this path behind their parents' backs. At some point, they may even be encouraged to take cross-sex hormones. Imagine, as a 12-year-old girl, being pumped full of testosterone, because that's what we're talking about here when we say cross-sex hormones. And in the worst cases, eventually pursuing surgical transition which could include what gender ideologues call top surgery, you may know it as a double mastectomy. It could also go as far as hysterectomies. And the inverse, of course, is true for boys who are told that they're girls. And this is what my friend Max Eden has deemed the school to sterilization pipeline. This is irreversible damage. And it may sound hyperbolic, it may sound radical, but what our children are being exposed to is radical and parents are waking up to it. Yet the political left is doing everything that they can to stop parents from protecting their children. Just today, a local Virginia ABC affiliate reported that a Virginia state legislator has introduced a bill, you may have seen this, that would expand the state's definition of child abuse and neglect to include parents who do not affirm their children's gender identity or sexual orientation. It would carry felony charges this is where we're at today. Closed schools, critical race theory, radical gender ideology. This is why school choice is so important. It is about values alignment, full stop. That is what it is about at the end of the day. Parents have a variety of legitimate views about education that are best served through a unique system of choices with lots of options, and yet right now, we have a system that, that does not support parents in choosing learning options that reflect their values or their hopes and aspirations for their children. Instead, we have what I call an iron triangle of government schooling. It is compulsory, it's assigned, and it's taxpayer funded. You are forced to fund them through your taxes, you are forced to send your child to school, and you are forced to send them to the school that is closest to where you can afford to buy a home. It's compulsory, it's assigned, and it's taxpayer funded. 
So what does that mean? It means that public schools have a captive audience and they get paid regardless of whether or not they're meeting the needs of families or performing well or align with the values of families in their community. Not to mention, by the way, that per pupil spending, inflation adjusted, has nearly tripled since the 1960s. And yet academic achievement outcomes have largely been flat, but in the past few years, we now know have declined significantly in what you call the Chinese COVID virus era. Significant declines in academic outcomes, significant declines in ACT performance that recently came out. Choice changes this equation completely. Take education savings accounts, for example. You're probably at this point, I hope, familiar with the concept of an ESA. I think everyone is familiar with the concept of what we can now call traditional school choice, right? A school voucher, which is effectively a coupon to offset the price of tuition at a private school of choice that you've chosen. This is a great option. This is the original Milton Friedman option of school choice. All the way back in, when was it, 1955, when he wrote The Role of Government in Education, that was when he articulated this idea of education choice. He said, yes, publicly fund education, but the public financing of education does not require government delivery of schooling. And so he argued to separate the financing of education from the delivery, from where a child will attend school. And he said to do this using a school voucher. And so that really largely remained an academic idea from about 1955 until 1990, when we get the first modern day school choice program in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And throughout the 1990s, we see a few new school choice options pop up here and there, Ohio, Pennsylvania, a few other places. We really didn't see it kick off in a substantial way until 2011. And that was the year that two big things happened. Arizona became the first state to implement an education savings account and the Wall Street Journal deemed 2011 the year of school choice. We saw 12 states that year expand or adopt entirely new education choice programs, vouchers, tax credit scholarships, and then Arizona's ESA option. This was a critical refinement of that original Milton Friedman school voucher idea. So if you think about a voucher being a coupon to pay tuition at a private school of choice, an ESA is like an Amazon gift card. You can use it to pay private school tuition, but you can use it for all of these other options. You can pay private school tuition, but you can also pay a private tutor. You can buy textbooks, curricula. You can pay for online courses. In other words, you can craft a completely customized educational experience for your child. You can even roll over unused funds year to year. You can even roll them into a college savings account. And so if you look at what Arizona did in 2011, they said for qualifying parents who aren't happy with their public school, you can leave your district school you get 90% of what the state would have spent on your child in the public school, ends up being about $7,000 per year now. If your child has special needs, the median is now $14,000 per year. Literally in Arizona, that money goes onto a debit card that the parent controls. And I still, to this day, as much as I talk about this, it's amazing to me that instead of assigning a kid to a public school and funding the school, Arizona has said, we're gonna spend that money, we're gonna send it directly to the parent, we're gonna give it to them on a debit card that they can then use to pay for all of these educational options. And so that has really been, it was in 2011, a game changer, and it remains a game changer today. Arizona, just last month, said, we are going to take this concept and apply it universally. Every single child in the state, if they want it, can now, instead of going to their public school, get an ESA and pay for private school tuition and anything else that they want that is an approved educational expense. This has worked really well for families, and we now have 10 states that have ESAs in place. Uh, and remember, this is a policy that only began in 2011. That is phenomenal uh, in terms of the pace with which we have seen ESAs grow. Why is it working well for families? I go back to Friedman again. Friedman articulated it, and I use this a lot, but I still think it's the best framing for understanding why mechanisms like ESAs are effective. But Milton Friedman said, there are four ways to spend money. Has anybody seen this? It's like a good framing. Okay, great. So Milton Friedman said, there are four ways you can spend money. And it applies to anything, not just ed policy. He said, you can spend your own money on yourself, your own money on somebody else, somebody else's money on yourself, somebody else's money on somebody else. And so what he argued was public schools spend money in that last category. They spend somebody else's money, your taxpayer dollars, on somebody else's children. And so they have no incentive to economize or to maximize value. 
But with something like an education savings account, you are spending your own money. It is the state per pupil funding, but I'm of the Margaret Thatcher opinion that there's no such thing as government money. It's only your money. So you're spending your money on your child. So you have every incentive to economize and to maximize value. And I think that's why ESAs are working so well. They align all of the incentives in the right way. So I think we should be very optimistic that we are finally reaching Milton Friedman's vision of universal education choice for every single family, to quote my friend, many of our friend, Corey DeAngelis, to fund students and not systems, which is the point we're finally getting to today. So school choice is imperative, but we also have to remain vigilant about what is happening in public schools. As much progress as we've made, it is still the case that 90% of kids are enrolled in public schools or public charter schools. And so we cannot sit on the sidelines and let the left dominate the content and the conversation that is happening within the walls of district schools today. And so one of the biggest ways that we have seen parents doing this is engaging with their local school boards. And this has been incredibly effective, the pushback at school board meetings by parents against things like CRT or radical gender ideology or closed schools. There are nearly 14,000 school districts across the country with nearly 100,000 school board members. And these school board members determine the shape and the content of curriculum and instruction in classrooms all across America. Every school district in America has an associated board of ed, which is why it is so important to engage. And about 95% of these board of ed members are elected to their position by local voters. Again, why it is so important to engage. And these members generally serve four-year terms. I would note, I think it's interesting, those 100,000 school board members represent the largest body of elected officials in America. So there's a huge opportunity there. And they wield considerable power over everything from curriculum and instruction to school bus routes. They oversee administrators, superintendent hiring and pay. They determine or influence school district budgets, governing policies, collective bargaining processes, spending, construction projects, curriculum, textbook acquisition school calendars, the list goes on and on. So it is critically important that we make our voices heard at these school board meetings because they are deeply involved in the day-to-day -day processes and policies that unfold in public schools across the country. Um, one thing states should think about doing, um, and we have been making the case for this, is aligning those school board elections to their general election when it takes place in the state. We know that historically, school board elections have enjoyed about 10% voter turnout who does that tend to be? Highly motivated teacher union uh, members and their allies. The people who you know, work day jobs and are busy parents can only be helped by moving those elections on to the general cycle election. So that is one thing for states to do. So I'll quickly and then hand it over to Amy, but um, note five things that I think states should be doing right now in order to empower parents and really make sure that we don't lose this moment that we have. And make no mistake, this is a moment in time that we cannot squander in terms of ed policy. We have never had more momentum than we have right now. So a couple of things. States should require public schools to post all of their content, all of their curriculum, all of their teacher training, by the way. If they are paying Ibram Kendi $25,000 for a 45-minute Zoom lecture to their teachers, that should be posted online. Everything should be readily available to families. You should not have to submit a Freedom of Information Act request or drive to your school district headquarters to know what your child is learning in school. So that's the first thing. States should require that of public school districts. States should adopt something uh, that's now being referred to as a given name act that would prohibit schools from using names that are or pronouns that are different for children than the name that is on their birth certificate without parental consent. If the parent consents to it, fine. But without parental consent, no more hiding that a child is changing pronouns or changing their name at school when they enter the school doors. Third, they have to prohibit the compelled speech of teachers and students. And they have to prohibit the application, and that's critical, the application of critical race theory in a way that violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And by application, I mean things like sorting children into affinity groups based on race. That is illegal, and states have to enforce that. States have to ban access to pornographic materials in schools and school libraries. That this even has to be said is mind-boggling. Uh, and if you don't believe that that is what is in school libraries, I would encourage you to go take a look at the books that are being used. And then finally, 
states have to go the route of Arizona. They have to adopt universal education choice from day one. Every single child should be funded with an education savings account from the moment they set foot in kindergarten, full stop. So I think all of these transparency coupled with education choice really are the hallmarks of good parental rights bills that we're seeing unfold in states across the country and to some extent at the federal level as well. And I really think that's the way to go. And I'm highly optimistic that we'll see that uh, really pick up speed in the months to come. So I'll stop there. Thank Thank you. I'd like to start today with a story. Keisha came from a family that highly valued public school education. Her grandmother was a public school teacher, she grew up in the public school system, and as a minority and single mother of three, she fully expected her elementary age children to attend public school for their entire education experience. But like so many others, COVID-19 threw a wrench in her plans. Her kids made it through the 2020 school year, but by November of 2021, she was tired of fighting a losing battle. Her kids hated going to school in the morning. Getting them up was torture, getting them out the door was impossible, and every new COVID outbreak meant they had to start from scratch again. So she decided to try something virtually unheard of in her community. She decided to homeschool. Now she knew that her parents wouldn't be a huge fan of this, so she made sure to do everything right. She she withdrew her kids from public school. She returned all the Chromebooks. She filed all the appropriate paperwork in Louisiana. And at the end of the day, she researched and purchased the curriculum that she was needed to teach her children. It wasn't a super successful year academically. Like many, the COVID slide had impacted her kids, and it took a lot of energy to get them up to grade level. But she discovered that when she was able to give them that individual attention, they were able to learn and grow in ways she hadn't expected. And there were perks. Her night owl kids could do school in the evening when they were most awake. Her kid who was a morning person could get up, get all her schoolwork done, and play for the rest of the day. There weren't false constraints on their schedule or their time. So she decided to do it for another year. Then in November of 2022, she got a knock at the door while she was making breakfast in her pajamas. A man in a police uniform was standing there. He asked her to step outside. She felt incredibly uncomfortable, especially because her neighbors started gathering to watch. But as a minority woman, she didn't feel comfortable saying no, so she did what he asked. He identified himself as a truancy officer and asked if her kids were in school. She said that she homeschooled. He replied, no, you don't. When she insisted that yes, she did, he said, well, I'm going to have to see your curriculum then. So she offered to go and get the receipts and show him, these are the books I'm using for my kids. Then he started to change his tone. Maybe he had the wrong house. What was her name again? Oh, well, his job was so hard. And for over 10 minutes, he went on about how difficult his job was, how no one wanted him to come by. Shocker. (laughs) And she stood there in her pajamas with her neighbors watching, feeling uncomfortable and unable to do anything. When she walked him through how she withdrew her kids and filed her paperwork, he admitted that he didn't actually know much about the homeschool process and what she really should do was call the social worker at the public school. So he gave her a phone number and left. Keisha was rightly furious, but didn't know what to do. So she called my office at the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. After hearing her story, I called the social worker's office and learned that they were just following up on people who withdrew last year. There were no concerns, no reason to send a uniformed officer to her door to harass her. My follow-up call was enough on their end. Case closed. But in the wake of the school's glib decision was an angry, scared mom who felt violated and betrayed by the public school system once again. And unfortunately, her story is not unique. It's one we hear almost every day at the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Perhaps you've seen the headlines over the last two years. They look something like this. Where have all the children gone? Did Idaho lose 11,600 school children? Thousands of students reported missing from school systems nationwide amid COVID-19 pandemics. Or this one from a few months ago. Cities face crisis with smaller schools as enrollment shrinks in wake of pandemic. Where did all the missing children go? At the heart of these articles and the widespread concern for these missing children, is an assumption that the public school system has primary authority and responsibility for the education and well-being of America's children. If they aren't enrolled in public school, they must be lost. The reality is 
that over the last 50 years, there's been a slow but growing movement of parents taking charge of their children's education. Those kids aren't lost. They're exactly where their parents want them to be. When my mom first started homeschooling in the 1990s, homeschooling had a stereotype. It was the jean jumpers, long hair, 12 passenger vans, but it was growing in popularity. By 1993, homeschooling was a legal option in all 50 states, and pre-pandemic, a very conservative estimate would show that about 3% of all families with school-aged children were homeschooling. And then a pandemic hit, and suddenly everything went remote, and so parents got the first opportunity to hear what their children were learning in class when they listened to them on those Zoom meetings and calls. Parents started realizing that maybe having their kids stuck in front of a screen for hours on end was not the great best fit for them. When schools did reopen, vaccines and mask mandates became hot-button issues, and the schools weren't prepared to address the individual problems of each family, let alone each child. The public school system was failing their students. And suddenly, homeschooling looked like a pretty great option, even for demographics that would not traditionally have considered homeschooling. I've spoken to hundreds of homeschool veterans across the United States, and every time I ask them how homeschooling worked during a pandemic, they would go, well, the public libraries were closed, but otherwise, nothing really changed. And that held a lot of appeal for families who wanted to try homeschooling. But taking charge of their children's education also became about discovering the flexibility and opportunity it provided them to grow as a family. At HSLDA, we saw a surge in working parents homeschooling, in grandparents homeschooling, in dads being the primary homeschoolers. We saw families sell their houses and just road school, because why just read about a place when you can go there in person? It was a sharp contrast to the stories we were hearing from the public schools as kids were getting the attention that they needed because they had parents who knew their children best and their strengths and weaknesses speaking into their lives. And people started to notice. In 2020, the U.S. Census Bureau started doing a pulse surveys. The surveys gauged the impact the pandemic was having on families, including in the category of education. One of the questions asked was whether there was at least one homeschooled child in the home. Since then, the pulse survey has been administered on a continual basis. It represents the 50 states, D.C., and 15 of the largest metropolitan areas in the country. The pulse survey also provided unprecedented opportunity to watch parents make education choices in the middle of a pandemic. So as you might guess, during the 2020 to 2021 school year, there was a sharp jump in homeschooling families that eventually leveled out by the end of the year at around 11% of all families with, homes, with, house, all families with school-aged children homeschooling. There was a general assumption from the experts that that number was going to drop significantly, especially once masking was over or children were allowed to go back into schools. But for many families like Keisha's, the answer was clear. Homeschooling was the best option for her kids, and that didn't change regardless if masking was in the schools or not. We're still waiting on the Pulse survey numbers for this year, but a conservative estimate shows from the spring of 2022 that 3.1 million households have at least one homeschooled child. That means one of the most conservative end of this, there's at least 9.2 million of all U.S. households with school-aged children right now that are being homeschooled right now. And they're not just your standard, stereotypical, white, middle-class families homeschooling either. The National Center for Education Statistics reported on homeschool population demographics. In 2016, they released a survey that can be contrasted with the demographics we're seeing in this Pulse study. These numbers show that between 2016 <laughs> and 2021, the number of black homeschooling households jumped from 1.9 to 18.3%. The number of Hispanic households homeschooling grew from 35 to 18.2% of the population, and the number of Asian households grew from 1.4 to 15.1%. The numbers of families homeschooling has also, has also evened out across income brackets. An average 17 to 20% of all families across all income brackets are homeschooling, at least one child in 2021. In fact, the second highest number of homeschooling families make less than 25,000 a year. So if you think those numbers are high, so do the public school systems. In fact, I saw a quote in one article from April of a superintendent saying, the fallout from lost students is likely to lead to major layoffs and closures if districts don't recover by 2024 when federal relief funds dry up. And after that, Armageddon, <laughs> end quote. Over the last two years, we've seen lots of efforts to stave off this Armageddon and find the missing children and return them to public school. Sometimes it's through flyers targeting the homeschool community 
reminding them of all the great things they got in public school that they were missing out on. Sometimes it's through an appeal to authority. In the state of Ohio, for example, a superintendent is supposed to respond to a notice of intent to homeschool with a letter acknowledging that the child is excused from public school. We had one district send out a response letter to all families who submitted their notice of intent with, having reviewed your homeschool plan, we would strongly recommend that your children continue their education in the public school system. If you've just left the public school system and you're new to this homeschooling thing, that's an intimidating message to hear from someone you've been trained to think of as the expert on education. He's looked at your curriculum and wants you back in the public schools. Well, what the parents don't know is that every single one of them got that, no matter what they submitted. That's just his default plan. We've also seen lots of efforts to prevent families from withdrawing in the first place, especially if they have a child with special needs. Because after all, the money follows that special needs child. Parents are regularly threatened with child protective services if they withdraw their child with special needs, often after these same parents were denied the services or attention their student needed in the first place. And this isn't necessarily from states you would expect. It isn't New York or California, although they have plenty of their own problems too. My most problematic state for withdrawing a child with special needs is Kansas. Government policies often encourage this additional scrutiny on parents. Some, some state legislatures have tried to incorporate home visits into homeschooling. So the state of Iowa, for example, had a bill that would have required health and safety visits quarterly for all families who chose to homeschool. We've seen this at the city level. The city of Chicago began a very robust outreach for at-risk students that employed postcards, door knocking, text messages, and the like. And you'll never guess, but homeschooling was one of the factors for being an at-risk student. In that situation, Chicago schools established policies that invented new unlawful demands on parents who wanted to withdraw their children. The schools insisted that parents file certain forms and provide personal information, when in fact Illinois law does not require families to submit any paperwork when they begin to homeschool. So they were asking for the exact opposite of what the law required. We've also seen the scrutiny on parents in the state agency level. The Tennessee Department of Education released guidelines at one point to check in on all students, identify their needs, and make resources available. Specific recommendations were to bypass parents whenever possible and question children directly. And we see this with individual schools. For example, in North Carolina, where HSLDA got multiple calls after a coach went door to door to check in that homeschool families actually live there. These are big picture policy problems, but imagine what that's like when you're that individual mom at the door, like Keisha. Imagine you're a single parent, perhaps low income, a minority. Well, it wasn't your first choice. You started homeschooling, and now it's working for your family. You know because you're the parent, and you know your child best. You can see the growth happening. But now there's a government official at your door, questioning your decisions, demanding more information, and threatening to involve Child Protective Services if you don't listen to their advice. One of the primary threats facing homeschool families is the same threat that faces parental rights across the United States. It's a state claiming to know better than a parent when it comes to the needs of their child. We see this in overly burdensome laws and regulations that still exist for homeschoolers. In the state of New York, for example, homeschoolers are required to file paperwork seven different times throughout the school year for each child. This includes a detailed breakdown of the course's information or progress in each of the required subjects. And some districts insist that that means a write-up on as many as 12 subjects each year for your elementary school child. At HSLDA, we believe that parents are the primary decision makers for their child's education because parents know their children best. And this is not a surprise to the education community. Studies show that parental involvement in education is crucial for academic success. As one study noted, the most accurate predictor of student achievement in schools are not family income or social status, but the extent to which the family creates a home environment that encourages learning. What encourages learning more than having your education right in the home and part of everyday life? Homeschooling provides unparalleled opportunity for one-on-one -on -one learning. Instead of sharing a teacher with 20 to 30 other students, the homeschool child gets the undivided attention of their parents. And we see the reality of this in the test scores that homeschoolers across the country. Homeschooled students typically score 15 to 30 percent higher than their public school peers on standardized academic achievement tests. But at the end of the day, it isn't about test scores. It's about the, st the student's well-being and who's in the best position to know what's best for that child. If you're a parent here today, you know your child best. You were their first teacher. You also care about them more than anyone else. So perhaps the public school is the best fit for them. Perhaps it is a private school, or a pod school, or a charter school of some kind. Maybe it is homeschooling. Or maybe it's a combination of several of these schooling options. That isn't something I can tell you, but it also isn't something your local superintendent can tell you. 
For those who choose to homeschool well, homeschool, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association is privileged to help them homeschool well. We offer caring support for every stage of a family's homeschool journey, from personalized legal advice and education consulting, to practical resources and even financial hardship grants. We were able to help Keisha in this way. When I finished speaking with Keisha about the situation with the truancy officer, I asked if there was anything else we could help with. I thought, perhaps she'd want to verify what paperwork she needed to file next year. Or maybe she'd want to talk with her education consultants about the best math curriculum for her son. Or maybe money was tight and she wanted to be put in, connect in contact with our compassion department for a curriculum grant. But instead she told me that what she, what she really needed was encouragement. Her family was not supportive and this truancy officer's visit was the final nail in her feelings of isolation and uncertainty. So I connected her with Dr. Matthews Rochelle Somerville, a homeschooling mom of six and one of HSLDA's education consultants. Dr. Matthew Somerville spoke with her on the phone for two hours and connected her with some of the homeschooling community in her area. For as terrible as it was, COVID-19 allowed millions of parents to take charge of their child's education in a way we've never seen before. And for many, it's not just a stopgap. It's the start of, their, of everything new for them. If you'd like to learn more about what we do at HSLDA, you can find more at hslda.org. But in the meantime, I'd encourage you to support the homeschoolers in your life. For many, this is a whole new world, but it's an exciting one. And we live in an exciting time that we can be part of this revolution in education. Thank you. Wow, what excellent presentations. I want you all to know, for those who want to take notes uh, but didn't, uh, we'll have a video of this up on our website uh, pretty quickly, right, Lindsay? We'll get the video, get it up. Um, I was sorry I didn't have a pen. I wanted to, uh, what a lot of great information. Thank you so much. Two experts here. We have a little bit of time for questions. Um, we have a handheld mic. Uh, if you raise your hand, I'll call on you, give your name and your, uh, if you have an affiliation, or I know some of you are homeschooling moms. So uh, first there, yeah. My name is Barbara Meadows. I'm from Madison, Virginia. And I wasn't able to attend Monday's meeting, but uh, it was a little contentious over the uh, issues of schooling. Um, our uh, schools in Madison are less than satisfactory. And I'm sure it's prevalent in many rural Virginia areas, and it's alarming. We have very successful homeschool programs in Madison, but not a good network connecting them. Now, I'm a grandmother of college-age children, but I do have friends who are red-pilled, if you will, as to what's going on with their children, especially in Loudoun County, where I used to live, which is why I came today, is to hear what, what kind of information is available. One of the things I'm curious about, that was a long intro, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs> One of the things that I'm curious about is the civics and programs that uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida has initiated. Are you familiar with the guidelines and the programs that are coming through for children in 2023 mandated by the state of Florida? And how does that uh, link in with our choices that we're all interested in. So, uh, uh, familiar on the surface level with it, I haven't read through their uh, guidelines in depth, but I do know that uh, one thing that they have planned to reintroduce is what uh, used to be pretty prevalent in the 70s, uh, an Americanism versus communism course. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think will be fascinating to see uh, how, how that all plays out in Florida, but I think that's a really good first step. Uh, people who I know who went through those courses said that they were excellent, so I was excited to see that. But, I mean, look, Florida's doing phenomenal things. We just released our first ever Education Freedom Report Card at Heritage. Florida took the first spot in our ranking, Virginia. I'm a native Virginian as well. Uh, Virginia did not do uh, nearly as well as one would have hoped. Uh, for a host of reasons, not the least of which is there's very little transparency around content and curriculum uh, in schools. Governor Yunkin has tried to address that and correct it, and I think is moving in the right direction on that, but Virginia has a long way to go. Florida did so well because they're highly transparent around their content, around state standards. Um, they have very few regulations on their private schools, very few regulations. We actually incorporate in our report card, HSLDA's ranking of the strength of homeschool laws. So that's a factor that we pull in. 
They're a very friendly state, I think, for homeschooling uh, and have phenomenal education choice options. So, you know, that is something that, that we've thought about, this really holistic approach to how free you are in a state. And a big part of that is as a parent, do you have access to content and curriculum? Uh, but what will be interesting, I think, in Florida to see how their social studies standards are shaped by the Americanism versus communism class. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Question? Uh, over here, perhaps? I'm Jenny Gentles. I am the director of the Education Freedom Center at the Independent Women's Forum and a friend of uh, Lindsay's. So I'm happy to be here today. I wondered, while we're among friends, um, can we talk through some of the concerns that the homeschooling community might have about education savings account? I know we, so many of us who are school choice advocates, education freedom advocates, are so excited about ESAs, education savings accounts. We're thrilled that the program is now universal in Arizona. We hope that those 10 states um, that have these ESA programs will be wonderful models for other states to, to replicate ESAs. We hope that Virginia will have yeah. ESAs. That would be wonderful as a parent. <laughs> I would love that. Um, but I understand that some people, maybe a little bit from the private school community, but definitely from the homeschool mm -hmm. community, have raised concerns. And I was, um, government strings, things like that. I was wondering if we could kind of talk that through. Do you want to articulate any concerns? Sure, if you want to. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll no. knock them down. No, I'm no. <laughs> so I think if we could summarize, it'd be like if you want to have ESA for the private schools, it's a great opportunity. Homeschoolers generally take the stance that we'd like to be left out. Mm -hmm. And it's because we have seen government regulations come attached to so many different parts of our homeschooling. We have tried so hard to get away from government overreach and government strings, we've tried to deregulate so much that what we don't want is to reinvite that regulation back in by taking government money. It, the phrase is, you know, government shekels come government shackles. And while there is a sense that it is your taxpayer money, it's also your taxpayer money mixed in with everybody else's money and now given back to you. And so when you do that, you've now put an accountability, which as a taxpayer, I'm fine with you being accountable with my taxpayer money. I want to know you're spending it wisely. As a homeschooler, I don't want the government telling me you can't use that curriculum you can't do this or that. So that's the short version. Yeah, so on the, um, and you know, all of that is well taken. And it's interesting because we, and you probably know, but um, working in Arizona in particular, worked closely with groups like mm -hmm. HSLDA to make sure those concerns were addressed in statute. And so in Arizona, in statute, homeschoolers are actually distinct in law mm -hmm. from um, what, what they refer to as students who are schooling at home. Uh, so it is an important distinction because you can imagine being in Arizona where you receive an ESA, and as one-third of families do, use it to not set foot in a brick-and-mortar school at all. They pay their um, private tutor, they buy curriculum, they buy textbooks, they never go to a brick-and-mortar school. And so you can imagine some state legislator being like, I don't know, you look like a homeschooler, uh, you're using an ESA, we're going to try to take the ESA regs and put them on you as a student who's schooling at home. As light as the ESA regs are, by the way, they're very, you don't have to do state tests. I mean, there's virtually nothing there other than regulations over taxpayer dollars. Um, so in statute, it is, they are distinct, and that was a request of the homeschooling community. And so there's that aspect of it. The other thing I would say is that we now have, what, 10 years plus of experience with ESAs where we haven't seen this transpire. But what we have seen transpire is what Amy articulated in her speech, which was, Homeschoolers get regulated, unfortunately, regardless of whether or not there's a school choice program operating over here. So we always have to be vigilant of regulations that might come on homeschoolers, but also on a private school choice option as well. So you know, we want more and more students, we want every student, but we want the most students possible, the greatest number of families possible, participating in private school choice options as a hedge against government regulations. And so I think, you know, the more people who experience education freedom, the more people will understand that um, these government regs are no way, you cannot regulate your way to accountability, right? Um, the best accountability measure is just parents who are free to walk with their feet. And so the more we can enable that to happen, the safer we are on both sides <laughs> from uh, overburdensome regulations. Thank you. Thank you. Amy, next. But let me tell you one quick little story. Um, I served President Reagan eight years and then President Bush. And their administrations. The last position I had was something called the Office for Private Education. 
three people at the Federal Department of Education, and I became the director of it, of tens of thousands of other people. But um, I got to know Mike, who had founded Homeschool Legal Defense, and I said, Mike, how, how can we help you in the homeschool? She said, three words, very gruffly. We came good friends afterwards. He said, leave us alone. <laughs> Leave us out of everything you do here in the federal government. So I always remembered that. That was excellent advice. Amy. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Amy Paul, and I'm a mom in Loudoun County. Um, for the past three years, I've been one of the angry parents speaking out at these board meetings. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that did start a groundswell of support that got Youngkin elected. But other than that, I was just there again this past Tuesday night. Those school board members are entrenched. They literally don't care yeah. what we say. Yeah. Um, I still feel very hopeless, and I'm just wondering if you have other, you know, other than going and speaking there with my quick 60 or 120 seconds that I'm allotted, yeah. um, what can we do? What is something tangible that we can do to help if, if that school board stays entrenched, mm -hmm. how can we do an end run around them? Run for school board. <laughs> I think you should run for school board. No, I, I can't sit through those meetings. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, your friends. I mean, I, I think that is that's the number one tangible thing we can do, right, is try to reclaim some of these school boards, and we are saying that. Happen across the country. I do think, as I said earlier, that if we can, and this would be a state policy effort that, you know, hopefully the current administration will be open to undertaking, but aligning those school board elections better to general elections um, across the Commonwealth would be highly useful. Um, and it is the case that you can be in a state where some but not all school board elections are aligned to the general. And so our recommendation would be for state policy to say every district's election needs to be aligned to that general election. Um, the more you can do to continue shaming them, the better. I mean, this is, you're right, I mean, it's made all the difference. It made all the difference in Virginia to get a good administration in. It has made all the difference in so many other states to videotape those meetings, to tweet it out, to, you know, have, there was a, I'm not sure um, what her name is, but there yesterday, I think, was a video that had gone viral yeah, of a woman. Yes, exactly, and she, she was just so good at pushing back against her school board. And she stayed on message, she was articulate, and you know there were no ad hominems. And I mean, that went viral because it was just such an effective speech. So I just keep it up and then get your friends to. If I can just say one yeah, final please. thing on that. They've gotten very smart at Loudon now. They mm. do not allow you to be filmed. Mm. You only will hear my voice when I'm speaking mm. and the camera stays on the board so that there's no more viral moments on Fox News. Is that legal? So they're, <laughs> they're very crafty. Yeah. Oh, Amy, I think I know what your answer to this is going to be. Well, what else? <laughs> I was going to say, I am with the Run for School Board, but bringing attention to it really does make a difference. And it's your world, so you know who's on that school board, you know what's happening, and it feels like, how does everyone not notice? But for the majority of parents, I found that's still a foreign concept. So for as much as those of us who are engaged and paying attention go, yes, we know, how can you not know? The more you can talk to your people about it, the more you can just share and make more public. This is your school board. This is the decision they make. The more difference they and have. Jenny and I were able to um, speak with Billboard Chris yesterday. I don't actually oh. know his real name other than Billboard Chris. Chris Elston. There we go. Uh, and so I think I was what, talking to him on the way here. Yeah, actually. I mean, I think what he's doing is so effective, right? I mean, literally, it's you know, tricky, tough as it might be to go out and stand with a billboard on you and embarrassing or whatever. I mean, it is eliciting thousands of conversations, and he is changing hearts and minds one at a time. What so. does the billboard say? He's raising awareness to the um, gender ideology in schools and the medical transition of children. So his billboards say children can't consent to puberty blockers, gender ideology should not be in school, or um, uh, no child's born in the wrong body. Um, and so, yes, he was at Loudoun. I push back on him going to Loudoun because I feel like Loudoun gets all the attention, but the Jessup Waters show reached out and he might be on there tonight. Beautiful. So, yeah. you know, again, he can. Loudon mm -hmm. brings awareness yeah. nationally to the issue. Yeah. It matters what you are, what you all are doing. Yeah. It really does. It does. This uh, lady here, and then uh, we have time for a couple more. Hi, I'm Valerie Wan. I'm with Concerned Women for America. I have two questions. Uh, my first one is, what are some good federal efforts um, to engaging in education policy? Mm -hmm. I know, you know, some people say be less alone, and I understand and respect that. But as far as public education, what would mm -hmm. be some good efforts, um, maybe that you would encourage people to engage in? And then the second question is: um, Is there any current federal legislation that you're tracking, good or bad? 
Yeah, yeah, lots of it. Um, so I'm of the the feds can't and shouldn't really do anything ever at all when it comes to education. Education is not an enumerated power of the federal government. If you crack open your constitution, it's nowhere to be found. Um, however, there are a few things that we would recommend, largely those things over which the federal government does have jurisdiction. So it might sound small, but Washington, D.C., Congress could turn that into an all-school choice district. That would be within their right to do so. They could do it by dramatically expanding the existing D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, their school voucher program. Um, they could require complete transparency around content curriculum within D.C. public schools, prohibit compelled speech and CRT, et cetera. Um, so really anything, and, and it does matter. I mean, it matters to, like tremendously for the kids in the system in D.C., but it also matters because it shows where Congress's priorities are to the rest of the country. Um, I would I've also argue that with existing federal programs, so if we had our druthers and we're working on it, we would eliminate the Department of Ed tomorrow. Um, in the meantime, with those existing programs like Title I, like the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, we should allow those dollars to be portable as long as those programs exist. I would say the same thing for the failed Head Start program so that the money follows the child to options that are actually the right fit for them. Um, we have a uh, I think my favorite paper that we've ever done, but it is a long 40-page articulation of how you would go about eliminating the Department of Ed. Because there are bills out there, there are statements, just eliminate the department, and that's all it says. And that's great, and I love it, but you know, we put forward an exact roadmap for, you know, it's basically a three-part test. Is a program ineffective? Is it um, duplicative? Or is it inappropriate at the federal level? So any of those, it's gone, which is 99% of the programs at the department. For the ones that you would keep, at least temporarily, or for the long run, you know, keep the DC voucher program, obviously. You know, it'll take a while to wind down student loans and grants, so in the meantime, put them over at Treasury. Um, civil rights, the, the Department of Ed has a civil rights office. They shouldn't, it should just be over at DOJ. So things like that, we walk through exactly what it would look like to actually eliminate the department. So hopefully the next administration and conservative Congress can take us up on that. You know, Lizzie, when uh, President Reagan was elected and one of his pledges was to eliminate the Department of Energy and Education. That's why I went there. I thought, I'm going to help. Right. It had only been in existence for one year. But you know his uh, legislation never even got out of committee and it was partly Republicans. And it just proved uh, what Reagan always said, the closest thing to eternal life is a federal program. Even after one year, it was never seriously considered. Okay, maybe one more question. Well, what an excellent uh, presentation, uh, and what an incredible audience. I know a lot of you have been involved in this in different ways for quite some time. I have some gifts for you. You know, Claire Booth Luce um, was a lady ahead of her time, and we have on our coffee cup, courage is the ladder on which all the other virtues mount. This is our limited edition coffee mug, of course. <laughs> and for you ladies, uh, with uh, my thanks for such a wonderful presentation, here's my book, How to Raise a Conservative Daughter. I signed it to you both. Um, I know you have a little boy, but who knows? You may get a little girl, and you as well, Amy. <laughs> Thank you all for your excellent questions. Uh, we have some lunch in the next room. We can continue informal discussions. And thank you both very much.